Again tonight, we want to greet you in Jesus' name and welcome all of you here. And this week has rapidly gone by, and we have a short weekend before us, and then, and then that is, uh, we're going to we're gonna have to say goodbye to you for a little while and go on to some other responsibilities. But it's been a blessing to be here with this congregation. I'm going to do something tonight that I don't think I've ever done in my life, and that's a, that includes more than 52 years of preaching. But I'm going to tell you that when we get to the end of the sermon this evening, I plan to give you an opportunity to respond to what you hear or what you have heard this week if anyone feels a reason to a need to do that. I'm going to tell you two reasons why I'm going to do that and two reasons why I'm telling you about that ahead of time. The one reason is because many, many years ago, I was sitting in a church service hoping with all my heart that there'd be an opportunity like that given at the end of the service. And I didn't know if the, how that was going to be, but I was anticipating that and desiring that and hoping that. And, uh, and that happened. And then some years after that, I was in a more serious spiritual condition than I was the first time. And it was a kind of a church service where normally there would be no such opportunity given because it was a Sunday morning service and very, very seldom in a Sunday morning service do you ever hear a preacher say we're going to give an opportunity for someone to respond who would choose to. And I was sitting there not sure what I was going to do if that would not be the case, if I would not be able to do that. And so when the preacher was finished that Sunday morning, he said, let's kneel for prayer. And so while we were kneeling for prayer, I told the Lord, I don't know what I'm going to do. I, I don't know how I'm going to get out of this service. I can't leave here. I don't know what I'm going to do in this meeting. And so when the prayer was over, the preacher who was praying, along with some others, were up here at this bench. And so normally the preacher always goes back and sits back down on the bench, and then the, whoever was in charge of the service closes it. But in this particular morning, when the preacher was done preaching, excuse me, praying, he stood back up behind the pulpit and he said these words. I wonder if there's someone here waiting for an opportunity to say something. I was on my feet before I ever finished that. I think God put it in his heart while he was praying to give that opportunity. And so what I'm trying to say to you is that we want to do that tonight. And so if there's someone here, and if you want to prepare your heart, if you want to think about that, if you've been hearing things this week, if in your own meditations with God, it may not have anything to do with what happened in this tabernacle, but something God was doing in this place in your heart, and would like to respond to you, may do that tonight. I want you to be prepared for that. And Brother Lauren, would you please keep that in mind? You'll do that, won't you? Because we're here to help people, Brother Lauren. We need to do that carefully, tenderly, but you know, with an open opportunity. So I think we should do that tonight. Is that okay? And I'm perfectly satisfied to direct these few thoughts this evening, more particularly to the young people of the congregation and to others from other churches that might be here tonight or from the community that might be gathered here. You all are welcome here. I'm going to say this to the young people before I start. I'm a little different from some preachers. I don't 
believe that the problems in our churches are the youth's fault. <laughs> Anyone hear me say that? I'm a little different from some preachers. I don't believe that the problems in our churches are the, are the young people's fault. So I want you to know that that's how I feel when you're listening to me speak. I'm not preaching to you saying, shape up or ship out. I'm not pre preaching to you and saying, this is where the problem is, get, get it straightened out. That is not how I feel. I have tremendous confidence in young people. I have tremendous confidence in young people that are naughty because they're the ones that can do the most good. I, I, I'm not afraid of someone that makes mistakes. A few, few have done more of that than what I have. And we have confidence in you, and yes, we're willing to help you, and yes, you're, you're, you're welcome to come and sit down beside us and talk about it. It was down in Costa Rica. It was a Wednesday evening service. The service was dismissed. The young fellows all sit behind here. I sat on the front bench. The young fellows sat right behind me, the girls over here, in the front. And so I don't know why it happened, but when the service was dismissed, I kind of sat down again. I don't know why I did that, because usually I go back and meet the people, but I was sitting there, and a young man came up and sat down beside me. About 17, 18 years old, Brother, Brother Dale, I'm a mess. I'm, I mean, Brother Dale, it, it ain't going good at all. Brother Dale, it, it's me and Dad. It's me and Dad, and it's my fault. And I don't know what to do. I said, well, son, there's a lot of brothers and sisters in your family. Your daddy and mother are probably soon ready to go home. They have a van out there. I don't want you to worry about it. You just go home and get a good night's sleep. Tomorrow morning I'll come over, and you and daddy and I will talk about it. Okay, Brother Dale. And he got up and left. Next morning I was over there, and we stood in the front yard of their house under an orange tree. You know, it did take very long to fix it between son and dad. It didn't take long to fix it. Not with an attitude like that. It didn't take long to fix it. And I just want you to know it's perfectly safe to say what you're thinking. It's between you and dad. Your dad is interested in it too. We'll take care of it. It'll turn out all right. And so I just want to encourage you. Because uh, the more real, real we can be, the quicker we find solutions for our problems. And I want this service tonight to be a safe place to do that. That's what I want it to be. So now, I've talked to some of these ministers in this congregation, and I've told them that I'm certainly open to any suggestions they might have for some thoughts this week. And they didn't have a whole lot to say about that, and I understand that. I think that was probably in order. But some or other, the thoughts that we have tonight came trickling through, and the person that gave these things to me might, might even, not even recognize in this message that it was his thoughts that sparked what we tried to gather from God's Word for this evening's service. But if you listen, maybe you can follow the train of thought that we have here. And now speaking especially to your young people, but I'd certainly invite the rest of you to listen. Vineyards were 
very commonplace to the Jews in Jesus' time. I think you know the Bible well enough to know that you have vineyards really all through the Bible, especially after the days of entering Canaan. And uh, you find vineyards in the prophets. You have parables about vineyards in the prophets. You have much teaching about vineyards in the Psalms and in the Proverbs. You have a lot of that recorded in the four Gospels. In fact, the term fruitful vine was a proverbial expression that applied to the mothers in Israel, that thy wife be as a fruitful vine. Remember that expression from Psalm 126, verse 6? The last verse of that. I guess I said that wrong. I wonder if that's not Psalm 128. I wonder if I wrote the right reference down there. I thought it was Psalm 126. I'm so I'm going to look at it because I might be wrong about that. Yeah, that's another verse that I wanted. It's 128. Thy wife shall be a fruitful vine by the sides of thy house. Thy children like olive plants round about thy table. Being fruitful was an evidence of divine blessing and being childless was a reproach. Just ask Rachel about that or ask Rebecca. But fruitfulness in a spiritual sense is not measured by childbirth. Being fruitful in the New Testament sense has two meanings. It refers, first of all, to the testimony of a vibrant spiritual life in the heart of the Christian, such as you find in this expression, the fruits of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, love. That's talking about the quality of your life. That's talking about what God is doing inside of our hearts, yours, and mine. It's talking about what the Spirit of God invested there. It's talking about what we can have that the world doesn't have. We can face the same thing and come out of it with peace that would cause great consternation and conflict in somebody else. We can love where others would hate. We can forgive where others would condemn. Because we have that fruit of the Spirit. And so being fruitful in this sense applies to the nature of your testimony, my testimony, what I am like spiritually. That's one of the meanings, and the, the New Testament uses that meaning of fruitfulness frequently. But it also applies, this word fruitfulness applies to spiritual reproduction. That is, that Christian life and faith is birthed and brings new souls into the kingdom of heaven that is also being fruitful. And we are called to be fruitful, you and I, in both of these areas of life. Not only with a proper testimony and a spiritual, being known as a spiritual person responding in holy and godly ways, but also in our interest in bringing souls that are, do not know the Lord into his kingdom. These two ways are how the Bible uses the term fruitful. In the parable of the soils, or the parable of the sower, as you might know it, Jesus states three conditions that prevent fruitfulness. You had that wayside soil there. If you don't know what that's like, you scatter here across the bridge, and as the trucks are passing down Interstate 81, take some seed and throw it out there on the highway. And what the birds don't come and catch up and eat that, the next Peterbilt that goes past will scatter to the wind. And you won't be getting much cosecha, you won't be getting much harvest from the interstate highway. Jesus was talking about that. And then there was the shallow stony soil. 
And so the rapid emotional and excitement of revival meeting very quickly fades away and there's not enough stability and the want over the lack of roots cannot endure opposition and the testing that comes in the offended one cannot endure and no fruit comes there because the crop never grew. And then Jesus mentioned there's a third thing that happens. He talked about a thorny situation there. Too many weeds, too much malayerba there. And he mentioned three things that these thorns, this choking, this killing this plant light. He named three things that caused that. He referred to the cares of this life. He referred to the deceitfulness of riches and the pleasures, the carnal pleasures, worldly pleasures, pleasures around us that prevent a spiritual harvest in the life of anyone who's taken up with those three things. And all of us are affected by those three things. None of us live without care. None of us do. None of us live without having to deal with finances, with money in some way or another. And all of us are attracted by the offers, by the pleasures, by the fun that's all around us all the time. We're affected by that. And I realize that we could have several sermons on what we just have heard so far. And this clearly explains, as Jesus speaks to us in that parable of the sowers of the soils, what hinders a fruitful life. For perhaps that parable does not necessarily tell us how to become fruitful. So we'll talk to you a little bit about that. I want you to listen to this next sentence very closely. We are not Christians because of what we do not do. We are not Christians because of the bad things that we quit doing. We are not Christians because we are not doing wrong things. Many moral people do not do wrong things. But we are Christians because of who we are and because of what Christ is doing right now in us. I'll give this illustration so that you understand a little bit better what I mean. When we began the congregation up there in the mountain where we live, there was a sending congregation, a congregation down the valley that thought that I should go up there and minister to a few souls up there that had recently come to Christ and as a result of preaching in that village in some homes. And would I go up there and try to help them, nurture them along, and so eventually then uh, we got a little church started there. And we kind of took the format, the congregational position, the brotherhood agreements, the uh, guidelines that we had in the sponsoring congregation, took them up there, and that's kind of that kind of became the norm for the foundation, the beginning of our new congregation up there, eventually. But as time went on and more nationals came into the congregation and they were newborn, they were new Christians, we all felt a need to take this position we had and make it very local, make it very personal, make it very much our own. And we wanted these national brothers and sisters to have a vital part in the development of, the final formation of, an ongoing position that we would have there in that congregation. 
And so we passed out to each one of the members a copy of the written agreement that we had had up till then and told them that they can make some adjustments there if they'd like to. We gave them a sheet of paper divided into four parts and if they wanted to add something that this particular document had, did not include and technology was an issue then, there was nothing about that in the original statement because there were no such things as cell phones when that was written. <coughs> if they feel there's something on there that no longer applies, they can subtract it or suggest that we subtract it. If there's something they feel is not written quite properly and they want to give a suggestion there, just write that down. We'll look at it. Just mark which article, which paragraph you have in mind there and, and which suggestions you think maybe would be appropriate. We'll look at it, talk about it together. And the last point was if they have any questions or something they don't understand. And this, I don't want to make you laugh, but one of our national Christians, it was a lady, a first-generation Christian. She was not a Christian very long. On the fourth point, questions you have about the position, she asked this question. I don't know if my wife even remembers this. She said, where in the Bible does it say that when you greet some of the holy kiss that the men should do the men and the women should do the women? Where does it say that in the Bible? She asked that question. Do you want to answer that, Brother Ellis? I don't want to put you in the spot, but uh, when, when a sincere Christian asks a question, brother, come up with the answer. And so that was one of the questions she asked me, uh, just to show you that new generation Christians can think too. You understand me? But in those comments, someone raised a concern that I thought was outstanding for a new Christian. This also came from a first generation Christian, this question. He said, Brother Dale, in the statement we have now, it says this is prohibited, and this is not allowed, and this is not permitted. And he said, the Christian life does not consist about what we don't do, it consists about who we are and what we do. Why don't we write this thing, what we do do, instead of saying what we don't do? Could you rewrite this in such a way that you explain the practice that we have and what we, what we want to do as Christians and what we feel the Bible has asked us to do, couldn't we write it that way? He wrote that question, that, that, that illustration down. He wrote that explanation down. This is a new Christian. And I'm saying to you that we're not Christians because of what we don't do. As right as what it is to not do certain things. It is right to not do certain things. Christians will not do certain wrong things. But we are Christians for another reason. It's because there's a testimony of Jesus Christ in here. That's what has to be foremost. That's what has to be demonstrated in our lives, yours and mine, whether we're youth or whatever age we are. Perhaps we are known better for what people know that we avoid. I was in a large meeting one time. There were about 2,000 dairy farmers in this meeting. This was in Costa Rica. My wife and I were sitting at a little table, and a, and a lady walked up to me. I didn't know the lady, but I knew her daddy. He's a well-known dairy farmer. He owns some farms right close to where we live, but he lives many, many miles away, but he has some farms there close to us. I think two or three different farms he has. And this was his daughter, and, and she's a very educated lady, and uh, maybe 55, 60 years old, 50, maybe 55. He would be nearly 80 years old when this story happened. 
And she... Walked up to the table where my fight was, and Suzanne, I wish I could remember how she asked this question. She said, if I'm correct, you do not believe in television. Out of a clear sky. There are thousands of people in this place. You do not believe in television. I wish I could send my children to you to live for a year. Because I like what you don't believe in. Which, what she meant was she appreciated that there'd be no television in the home and she thought it'd be good for her children to be raised where there's no television. I could have said to her, you can pull the plug out. I should have said to her, dear lady, you can take care of that in your home. And there was somebody who was focusing on what we don't do. You understand that? It's not wrong to not do some things. I'm trying to get the point across to you that we're, we're Christians because of what we do, not because we don't have television. There are a lot of people in this world that don't have television. They don't have one. There's no electricity. They don't have a battery to keep the thing running. They've never have seen one. They don't know what it is. That does not make you a Christian because you don't have a television. You understand that? Am I getting this across? So we are non-resistant. We don't resist. Does that make us a Christian because we don't resist? Non-conformed. We are non-TV. Non-Facebook. Our cars are none Corvette. We are none Dallas Cowboys. There is none swearing of oaths, and that's the way it should be. And we rightly expect none touch courtship. If you don't have that here, you ought to have it. But we are not Christians because we do no wrong. We're Christians because of what we do right. Christian life is, first of all, spiritual life. It is the life of Christ within us. And that fruit of the Spirit restrains wrongdoing. It certainly does. But it also creates a testament of Jesus Christ in our lives. It is not good enough. It is not spiritual. It is not right for me to have no bad fruit on my tree. I must have on my tree. I wanted to see if at least somebody was listening. Just, just have a tree with no bad fruit on it. That's not what the gospel standard is. Every good tree bringeth forth that's the way it is. It's got to be that way. The good tree must bring forth good fruit. 
So here again, we see a perfect harmony between the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of John. We talked about that last night. Some people think those Gospels don't match. They feel that Matthew is very, very inferior. John only has Gospel in it. There's no Gospel of Matthew. But if you read those two books together, you'll find that both those books are very wholesome and very united, very harmonious in their promotion of good fruit on the trees of our lives. And if Jesus taught anything in the Sermon on the Mount, he said that a tree is known by its fruit. And in John, we certainly see the importance of a fruitful testimony. I want to say here, before I go further, so no one has a mistaken idea, it is not right to say no, it's not right, it's not, it's not wrong to say no. At times it's very appropriate to say no. If you want proof of that, I'll, t- I'll show you that God did it. If you read Romans chapter 12, which is a very common chapter to you, some of you know that chapter by heart, Some of the principal doctrines of your congregation are found in that chapter. You'll find the word not, 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 time after time after time and verse after verse in that chapter. Including the very last verse. In time after time, it's negative. In time after time, God says, not this way. Not slothful in business. Not, not, not. It's not right, wrong to be negative, but we're Christians because of who we are and what we do and the fruit, the good fruit that's produced. There must be good fruit on the life. I think the people who think they could stop being bad, they'd be good. That's a mistaken idea. We're not good just because we stop being bad. I'll give you an example. So you drive down the highway, interstate highway, this is Route 11 out here, this pike. And it's about 6 o'clock in the morning, and uh, you're, you're hurry to get someplace that's raining like cats and dogs, like they say in Pennsylvania. I don't know if they say it in Virginia or not. And you go down around there, and you, you come to a place along the side of the road. There's a car parked over there, and the hood's up. And right when you're getting up past the side of the car, you see uh, coming out from the hood, there's a young lady there, maybe 20, 25 years old. And her car isn't running, and she's getting soaking wet, and she does not know what to do. Her car doesn't run. And, and you look at, you look over to out the window as you go past her and then check your rear view mirror when you go past and you get on the road and you say, I did her no harm. <laughs> and you did her no good. You understand that? Just because you did no wrong doesn't mean you did right. And there's no law in the state of Virginia that makes you stop, stop and help her. You don't need to offer her a ride. You don't need to take her along. You don't need to see if you can pick up something for her. She's out of gasoline. She doesn't know what's wrong with that car. The hood's up. She's getting soaked. And, and no police officer's going to arrest you because you didn't do something for that lady. But the good Samaritan would have done something for that lady. It's just that simple. That's just a simple illustration. You should be able to understand that. And so it's not because we didn't do bad. You did no wrong to that lady. Or, 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 or am I wrong about that? Just think about it a little bit. So the Christian life consists of what flows out from us. The life of Christ that comes out from us. And I'm sure that all of us have done that. I'm sure I have done that. And uh, I've had the very, very fortunate experience, the very beautiful experience 
of having people stop and help me when I was in trouble along the road. I know what it's like to have a state policeman, a highway patrolman, turn his machine, his lights on and pull me off the highway and wonder, what is, he, what is wrong? I, I, you know, speed limit? Uh, what, what might it be? And the, the gentleman comes up to my window and says, Sir, I'm sorry to bother you, but you, you're pulling a trailer back there, and that trailer's got a flat tire. And I was checking out your trailer, and I don't see that you have a spare tire on the back of that trailer. I wonder if you have one with you. Do you have a spare tire with you on that trailer? And then he said, Do you have tools to change that tire? He said, is it okay if I help you get that done? And that police officer, there dressed in his fine uniform, is taking a wheel off my trailer, trying to get this thing going again. And when he had it all back together, he said, there, that should get you on the road. Have a good day. What do you think about that? Is that man's name Jesus or who is he? And go thou and do likewise. Go and do thou likewise. So this is the Christian life. It's a fruitful life. A life that's not only concerned about my getting there on time. It's six in the morning, it's raining, I've got to get there. But other people must get there too. And you say, well, they've got cell phones these days. And you say, they've got AAA in Virginia. And you say, there's a policeman back there two, two miles back. He'll pick up what he gets, gets there. And there might be times it's appropriate to, to, to let others take care of those things. But the Christian life does not consist of me deciding that I won't do wrong today. In fact, do you remember what Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar when he had that terrible dream? about that animal out there with the hair growing long and the fingernails and, and out there he was eating grass like an oxen. Do you remember what Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar? He said, break off your sins by righteousness. Don't just try to stop being bad, Nebuchadnezzar. The only way you're ever going to be able to live your life as you should is to fill it with righteousness. Doing that which is right. Taking your clock and turning it the right direction and doing it the way God wants it done. So we want to build on that lesson from last night. Let's look at a text in the book of Hosea, the last chapter, chapter 14. Hosea is the first of the minor prophets. It's at the end of your Old Testament. We don't preach from that chapter very often, so you might have trouble finding it. I'd like to read verses 4 through 9. I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely, for mine anger is turned away from him. I will be as the dew unto Israel. He shall grow as a lily and cast forth his roots as Lebanon. His branches shall spread and his beauty shall be as the olive tree and his smell as Lebanon. They shall dwell, they that dwell under his shadow shall return. They shall revive as the corn, grow as the vine. The scent thereof shall be as the wine of Lebanon. Ephraim shall say, what have I to do anymore with idols? I have heard him and observed him. I am like a green fir tree. From me is thy fruit found. Who is wise that he shall understand these things? Prudent that he shall know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the just shall walk in them, but the transgressors shall fall therein. 
And the title of this message comes from the last verses of verse 8, the last words of verse 8. From me is thy fruit found. It's the same as if Jesus was talking to you tonight and to me. And he's saying to us, as he stands before us, and beyond the second page I seek thee, Lord. And he says, from me is thy fruit found. And to help you understand what that text means, just go back to chapter 10 in that same prophet, and the first verse. And you'll see the great contrast here between chapter 10, verse 1, and chapter 14, verse 8. Israel is an empty vine. He bringeth forth fruit unto himself. From me is thy fruit found. So it was self-effort. It was external religion. Self-righteousness. It's the same thing you have in Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. I'll read it to you. And Paul is speaking here of his own brethren. Brother, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteous to everyone that believeth. And so they, they were righteous in their own way. They had their own external way to prove to others how unique they were. I'll just say a bit more about that. It was a hollow and empty and fruitless religion. And yet listen to these words. Yea, all of this have I kept from my youth up. And listen to these words. I thank thee that I'm not like other men are. Extortioners, adulterers. I'm not like that. Nor, nor like this over here. And, and I give tithes twice a week. Or fast twice a week. And I give tithes of all that I have. And... No fruit found there. It's like the priest and the Levite to walk by the other side. Nothing to offer. That man praying thus with himself in the temple in chapter 18 of Luke had no help to offer at all to the publican back here smiting his breast who would not so much as lift up his eyes to heaven. He didn't have a thing to offer him. Yet he was so filled with his importance. But there was no fruit on the tree. He didn't do any wrong to the publican. The priest and Levite didn't do any wrong to the wounded man in the ditch. Or, or did they? Yet, in the time of Jesus, many wasted and ruined lives were changed. Simon, the son of Jonas, becomes the rock. You know him as Peter. The sons of thunder became apostles of love. You know them as James and John. A publican saw salvation come to his house. And fishermen became fishers of men. How did this happen? It happened because, because Jesus called men 
two times. And we read in the Gospels of the two calls of Jesus. I'm going to talk to you briefly about those two calls. The first call of Christ. Follow me. First call of Christ. Says it to you tonight, says it throughout this week. Follow me. This is our introduction to Christ. We maybe have not known him. And maybe we have heard of him. But we never walked with him. We certainly didn't follow him. We didn't go where he went. We didn't see what he did. We didn't listen to what he said. We didn't see how he responded to the situations of life. We were not his people. We were not his disciple. We were not learning from him. We had heard about it. Some people came and ate extra food because he fed them that day. Or some people took up their beds and walked. And some people had their leprosy cleansed. And some people had their eyesight restored. But some of these people didn't even know who had done it. And Jesus says, follow me. Come and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly of heart that you could find rest for your soul. And that following Christ is quite a radical decision. And when people did that, boats filled with fish were left behind. And a table with tax records and the tribute money still upon it was left behind. And family was left behind. Yea, and one's life also. All these things are forsaken as one becomes a disciple of Jesus Christ. And for many, this is a very costly thing to do. And for many, it has made very significant changes in their lives. This very call of Jesus itself is life-changing. And someone said to Christ one day, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? But when Peter said that to Jesus... He was mistaken But what he was thinking. He thought, hey, Master, I have some accomplishment here. You're going to take care of me? You're going to reward me for it? Do you realize what we left? Do you know what it cost us to do this? What, what is the payment? What do we get for it? But, but dear people tonight, follow me. And once Peter followed far off, the distance got too great between him and Jesus. But the night was very cold, and a fire provided some warmth. And a farmyard rooster announced a serious breach between Peter and his early commitment. I, 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 don't, I don't know the man. Count me out. Not to do with that. But, but your voice. He's a Galilean and you have a Galilean voice. I, I can tell you've got an accent. And a testament was lost. And whatever happened to that noble confession he had made just a short while prior to that. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And there is much to learn in following Christ and hearing him and seeing him and passing out multitude 
multiplied portions of loaves and fishes because Christ blessed that food and break it. And there were 12 baskets left over. It must be an exciting thing to be a follower of Jesus to participate in an activity like that. But Jesus offers to us tonight a second call. And for this, you might want to turn to the Bible. I, I did that for you. you. You understood the Bible passages and you knew the Bible stories I was referring to there. But this time, go to John chapter 15. Second call of Christ is different. Second call of Christ, he could not give at the very beginning, but he can give it now. Only 11 of his disciples heard this second call. One was no longer there. It's when he said these three words to his disciples, Abide in me. That's the second call of Christ. I'd like to read about this to you from this chapter, starting at verse 1. I am the true vine, and my father is the husband, and every branch of me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away, and every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it might that it may bring forth more fruit. Now you are clean through the word that I have spoken, which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered. And men gather them, and cast them into the fire, they are burned. If ye abide, and by the way, that verse is written in John, that's not in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Did you notice that? Were you thinking about that when you read that? If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit. A, a tree, that tree that Jesus cursed, that fig tree that Jesus cursed that was filled with beautiful, brilliant, glossy leaves. That, that tree was not cursed because there had bad fruit on it. That's, that's enough of that. You've heard that lesson by now, right? That, that, that should be clear in our minds by now. There must be fruit on the tree. Good fruit. There must be good fruit in your life, in my life. <coughs> so shall ye be my disciples. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall be, abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you, that ye should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. Abide is used in these 16 verses 10 times. It's uh, translated abide nine of the seven of the 10 times. It's translated by the word continue in verse 8. That was verse 9. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love, abide ye in my love. And it is translated by the word Remain in verses 11 and 16. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might abide in you or remain in you. 
And in verse 16, it says that your future, fruit should remain or should abide. It should not be lost. Here is a vine and a branch relationship. I am the vine, the true, is the way the Greek Testament would start that first verse. Ye are the branches. I am the vine, you are the branches. There's a reciprocal dependence here. Each one needs the other. The branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. And the vine does not ever produce clusters of grapes. All grapes are produced on the branches. But they can't do without the vine. But the vine can't do without the branches. The fruit of the Spirit forms on the branches. The life of Christ is seen in your life. Christ is not here. No one sees that. He sees you. The rest of the world sees you. They don't see Christ here. If they're going to see anything of the nature and life of Christ, they see it in the Christian. The way to find out what Christ is like is to see what a Christian is like. You know, it's a beautiful thing in Antioch when those new believers, they were Grecians. They were heathen. They were the ethnos. They were the, uh, they were the, of the community. They had, they had a non-Anabaptist background. And the neighbors saw the change in their lives and they heard just enough to know. And they figured it out because they could see it in the living of these people, how they lived. And they said, these, these are Christians. The word Christ means the anointed one. The Christi Christians mean, and you, you always have said, that Christians mean that we're like Christ. But if, if you're a Christian, that means that you're one of the anointing ones. And they saw that anointing on their lives. And they knew it was the way Christ was. And Christ was not there. Christ never visited Antioch of Syria. There's this interdependence. And notice which branch it is, according to our reading in John 15, that is purged. That word purged sounds like a rather strong word. It sounds like someone's being ripped out, torn apart. It sounds like somebody's being expended or ended, purged. It sounds like uh, it sounds like something's being eliminated. But what it means is purified. Our Spanish Bible says cleansed, pruned. And, and anything that we can do to this branch that's already fruitful, that already is producing, already has a promise of a crop, we're going to do something to it so it brings forth more yet. And God's interested in that part of your life. And many times you probably felt like I have, that I'm doing so very little for God. How much less can I do and still get by with it? I, I'm just not very fruitful. And, and God looks at that and God says, well, there, there are a few things wrong. There are a few things I'd like to adjust. There are a few things I'd like to take care of. Would you let me do a few things in your life? And if we yield to that, if we're willing for that, if we invite that, if we recognize the need for that, if we come to God and say, I really would wish you would do it, the process is much quicker. If when God gets out of his pruning, we call that shears, would you call that a thing there? Tejeda? Would you get that out and start working on that? And you argue with it and tell God no and say, not that, not anymore, and no more of that. 
what is God supposed to do? And God says, you know, that, that thing in your life that you've been very dependent upon, you have really felt that you were doing well there. I really do not need that in your life. I'm going to take that away from you. And you say, I, I didn't expect you would take that, Father, but if that's your will for me, it's okay. I'll accept that too. And God says to himself, you know, I really like that attitude. I wonder how far I can get with this young life. I wonder how far I can take that young man. I wonder how that young lady is going to respond to what else I have in mind for her. I'm going to, I'm going to do that yet. And under that branch, under that, under that vine that represents your life, there's a great big pile of foliage and leaf, leafy things that have been cut off and piled up down there just in the ground. And the very things you felt was your asset and you felt was your contribution. You felt it was your ministry, your opportunity. You felt it was something that you could contribute. You felt it was a special grace or effort that God has given to you. And he took it away from you. There's in a pile. If you can in that moment yield yourself, bow your heart and say, yes, Lord, it's okay. It's all yours in the first place. It doesn't depend upon me. Some of us live in places where there's a lot of robberies. We had a young daughter in our home and she was trying to save money to buy a Bible. She had, she, had, she had in mind a Bible she would like to buy and she didn't have enough money to buy it. And she was trying to save some money. She didn't, she didn't have much chance to earn any money. She got very little money, but she had a few dollars there, and she didn't have enough yet. And we come home to church on Wednesday evening, and someone had broken into her house, and when she went into her bedroom, that money was gone. Well, was it right for Loretta to have a Bible? What do you think? Is that okay? But what I wish you would notice is, I wish you would notice her response when she found out that her Bible was gone. Her hoof for it is gone. Well, no Bible then, I guess. What was God doing there? And to your life and to mine. That's a very holy act of God. There's only one thing he's trying to do. He's not finished, but he's working on it. He's not finished, but he has a plan in mind. He's not finished, but he's, he's saying he's going to produce fruit when we're done. And for us to yield to that, for us to permit God to do that, to take that away from us that we felt was so necessary for our lives. There he goes. There he goes. That's the very vine that the, our Lord specially deals with. I could say this to you also. The Lord also knows how to work on those of us who are resistant. Not yielded. Not coming to him in prayer and saying, Thy will be done. Not saying to him, I surrender all. Not saying to him, whatever your will is, that's fine. I'll go where you want me to go, dear Lord. I'll be what you want me to be. Not doing that. We resist that. We have plans of our own. We can get there by ourselves. We know how to do it. We're capable of paying for it. We don't have to depend on anybody else. We can handle this thing. And God says, 
doesn't work that way. Until you have poverty of spirit. Now that word poor in spirit there in chapter 5 of Matthew verse 3, the word poor is used in the New Testament very few times. It doesn't necessarily mean don't have money to pay for it. It doesn't necessarily mean a dirt floor instead of shiny ceramic. Doesn't necessarily mean thatch instead of a high level roof. It means this. The poor spirit there is the same word as used other places for a beggar. It's the word for a beggar. It's the attitude of a person that knows very well they're unable to do it. It's the attitude of a person that knows that without God's help I can't. It's the attitude of a person that lives a dependent life. It's the attitude of a person that doesn't have enough self-sufficiency to make it happen by himself. The poor spirit is a person that knows that I've got to depend on that vine. So, so that, so that fr- from thee, from me is thy fruit found. It just came from me. Otherwise it was my stuff. Otherwise it was what I could do. Simply so much ability, so much practice, so much experience. That's all it was. So much force, so much personality, so much charisma, so much Giftedness, that's all. But not from Christ. But not from the Spirit of God. But not as a result of love. But not as true righteousness. It's not the way the clock goes. Not not right wiseness. Not God wise. Dale wise. Without me you can do nothing. Peter needed to learn that, and so do I. And what does it mean to abide? Abide in me, that invitation of Christ, that second call of Christ. What does it mean, abide in me? Spanish says permanecer, and though you don't know Spanish, you recognize the word permanent in that, in that word. Permanent, abide in me. He combines the elements of both time and place. It is a choice to dwell, to make your abode in Christ, and continually to remain there. It not only tells us where we are, but when. We are in him and when. Continually. It's a choice, a decision to remain there. Your life is hid with Christ in God. And as we do that, a miracle happens. When I chose choose to remain in Christ, when I choose to depend on him, when I choose to make my abode there, when I choose that I cannot leave there, when I choose I cannot do it without that, when I choose that in this very moment I'm done unless Christ is engaged. I'm done unless I'm connected to him. I can't do it if I'm not attached to that vine. I must receive my life from him. I must feel his pulses moving through my heart. I must receive his words. I have to receive his direction. I have to know what he wants me to do. I have to know that he's enabling me to do it. I can't do it without that. Then a miracle happens. When that takes place, I'm going to show you the miracle in the 14th chapter. In verse 23. Jesus answered and said unto him, 
If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. Can you imagine that? Christ in me, the hope of glory. When Christ decides he chooses me, he wants to live in me. I want to live in him. You say, I don't understand that, Brother Dale. It doesn't make sense to me. I don't know how you can do that. Physically, give me an illustration. Tell me how that works. Well, I'll give you two of them. You've heard both these illustrations. You should have had at least. But if you take a little bottle, this little tiny bottle, it has very little usefulness as a little bottle. But it has no top on it. You put it down into the ocean. The ocean is in the bottle. The bottle is in the ocean. The bottle is filled with the ocean. And though that little bottle in the ocean makes no difference to the ocean, it makes tremendous difference to the bottle. Anything that's in that ocean is available to the bottle. It's at the right place. It's going to stay there, abide there, remain there. You don't like that? Go to Brother Wade Nicely's home. Have dinner at their table. And while you're eating there, look over to the wall on this side. You'll see a beautiful picture painted by a Vermont painter of a blacksmith shop. Let's get out of the car and go on inside. Or maybe you dismounted from a horse or jumped out of your surrey. Let's go inside the shop and there's a forge. Blacksmith is in there and he has a horseshoe. He sticks it in the fire. The bellows is going and the, the, that red heat is coming up out of that forge. And the horseshoe is in the fire. That thing is glowing red because the fire is in the horseshoe. And the horseshoe remains in the fire, abides in the fire, and the fire abides in the horseshoe. And if he would take it out of the fire, he wouldn't be in it anymore. Something's going to happen to that horseshoe shortly. Not right away. It's going to take a little while, but that red glow is soon gone. It's not the same as it was. There's only one way that the glow can be in my life and your life. It's got to be abiding in Christ. And Christ has got to make his abode in me. That's a reciprocal miracle that happens there. And as the one happens, the other happens. You can't put the bottle in the water without the water being in the bottle. You can't put the horseshoe in the fire without the fire being in the horseshoe. You can't be in Christ without Christ being in you. It's a beautiful story. That's what abide means. I'm trying to explain that to you. And notice just how that this is practically done. We abide in, that is we live in. We live in the word of Christ. And his word is constantly and abundantly and richly filling us as we're in that word. His word abides in us. And Jesus told those Jews, this is your problem. You do not have my word abiding in you. That's the trouble with you. It's not abiding there. And I read it in the morning, but it doesn't abide there. I gave a talk on it on the Wednesday night, but it doesn't abide here. Why doesn't it abide with me? Because I didn't believe it. And so I'm not living it. It does not find fun expression in me. Because it was knowledge. It was understanding. It was Greek. It was linguistics, it was a story, it was a lesson I was telling, it was a space I was filling. I don't, don't believe what it says. So there's no faith in it. I don't have faith in that word. It's just something I was taught to do. It's something I was taught to say. I know how to do it. 
I can't explain it. But, but there's no glow in the horseshoe. And the fruit is not found. And something's wrong with me. And I must come to a place where I can't live that way anymore. I've got to change the way I'm living. And so the word of Christ, we read about that in this 15th chapter. It's a very important part of it. We draw near and unite ourselves with the love of Christ. And the love of Christ is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which he hath given unto us. Spiritual power is the result of that. Answered prayers are the result of that. Look at verse 7 in that 15th chapter. If ye abide in me and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will and it shall be done unto you. And verse 16 says, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that ye should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. Beautiful verses here. Fellowship with the brotherhood, brotherly love, as I have loved you loved, you love. As the Father loves me, that's the measure of it. As the Father loves me, that's the way you love each other. You can do that with a brother and sister in the church. You know, there's an exercise that you can practice here, and I'm supposed to be talking to young people, and I don't know if I'm talking to young people or not. I think this applies to young people. I think they need to set the example, though, from the older ones. So there's a brother in the church, a sister that's kind of, you know, they're not what they should be. They're kind of a, a marginal type people and kind of what, you, what some preachers call high maintenance members. You know what I mean by that? That's a terrible word to use. Stop using that word. Don't, don't use that word. But you have this church member over here. You have this person that's kind of, you know, uh, not so easy to live with, not so easy to work with, not so easy to have in the... But wait a minute. You want to turn that person into a very, very beautiful person. Do you want that person to shine? Do you want that person to be radiant? Do you want that person to all of a sudden change? Do you want that person to all of a sudden have a metamorphosis, a complete change, turn to a butterfly? Do you, want to, do you know what to do to make that happen? Just get a hold of that person in your mind. You might be in your prayer closet. You might be on your knees on the floor praying. Get that person in front of your mind. And ask the Lord to show you all the beautiful things that he put in that person's life. Ask yourself what you would lose if you had that, that person at a funeral tomorrow morning in your church building. And they'd be here with you again no more. Ask God to show you the value. Ask God to show you what you would lose. Then when you get done doing that, ask God to show you what you could do to make that person even better than what they are now. Improve them even more. Get even more mileage out of them. More fruit on those vines. On those branches. What can we do? And let God show you. And as you think about that person, and as you see this thin person changing, and you see this whole image changing before you, and you see this person with those, some of those defects of personality changing into a response to the love that you're showing to them. And all of a sudden, the person that you have in mind when you step out of that prayer room is not at all the person you knew when you stepped in. And what changed? It was all one place. It was all right here. 
And that's the miracle of abiding in Christ. That's a miracle of abiding in my love. We need that in the church. I need it in my life. You must do that to me. I make all kinds of blunders and cause all kinds of offenses. If someone doesn't give me a chance to do that, I don't have a chance. If it depends upon my doing it right and make a good impression every time I try it, it doesn't turn out that way for me. If someone doesn't love me, I'm finished. And because others have done that for me, I have an opportunity to do it for others because I can love nobody until they love me first. I can love no one until I allow someone to get the opportunity to find out what I'm like, find out what my needs are, and find out that I'm not very perfect and find out that I can't hold up my end of it a lot of times. I realize that all this is by the grace of God. And how is it possible? And Jesus tells us in these three chapters how it's possible. And I can't take time to do this for you because the time ran out. But he sends the Holy Spirit. He tells us that four times in these three chapters, chapter 14, 15, and 16, that Holy Spirit, that comforter, that paracletos of God. And he says the other paracletos because he is the first one. And this Holy Spirit that he sends forth abundantly into our lives is that power of Christ that does in us what it did in him. And when the Spirit of God came upon Christ and you saw what he did as, as, as he lived, that same Spirit is in us. And Christ sheds into our hearts the very life of God that enabled him to be who he was when he was in this world. And now it's my turn. And I have that fellowship with God. I have that opportunity to serve him. I have that opportunity to know him and that opportunity to believe him. That Christ wants to do in my life with that Holy Spirit of God. What he did for others. And through others in this world. This is the fire that's in the lantern. This is anointing oil that is in the vessel. This is the power to overcome sin in the world. This is the dove that brings peace to the troubled people around me. This is the breath of God that gives life to wherever it goes. This is the birth of water and spirit. This is the union with spirit and life. So that we not only have the word of truth, but we also have the vital spirit of that truth. This is how we worship God in spirit and in truth. I say a few words in a practical conclusion, and then I just want you to meditate upon what you've heard. No one abides in Christ Abide in me. No one abides in Christ who feels no need of him. If we need no connection, no union with Christ, we will remain, in your modern language, offline. We will not be connected to him. The secret to fruitfulness is to be in union. I want to mention just two points where the Bible tells us we should be like Christ in this world. I think, first of all, that beautiful thing we see in Jesus, and we see it in him more than we see it in anybody else, in the, in, the New, in the New Testament especially, but we see the unique relationship that Jesus had with his Father in their fellowship one with another. And that phrase is referred to by John especially several times, both in this book and also in his first letter. The fellowship that Jesus had with the Father. And they spent much time together in prayer. 
And, and the father gave his words to the son. And he was the very word of God, the Logos of God. And he never said a word except the father gave him the word to say. And the only thing he ever did in this world was the thing that pleased the father. And so God said, this is my beloved son. And they had that fellowship together. And they knew each other's heart. And they were, they were in business together. They were partners together in what he did in this world. And when we have fellowship with God, that's what we're doing. And that's why this Bible is a vital part of our life as young people. We live in this book. We memorize portions of it. And we believe what we read here. And we stay there till we believe it. And one of the best ways you can read this Bible is to put it on a chair and kneel down in front of it and read a verse. And then take that Bible verse and turn it into a prayer and pray that back to God and say, this is, I, don't, I don't leave here until I have this in me. Do this in me. And then the prayer that goes with that. And I, I wish I could have the whole evening yet to preach to you in prayer, but I can't do that. But, there's, but prayer is a vital part of relationship with God. And this produces fruit in your life. You can't be a praying Christian, a closed-door closet Christian, without people being aware of it. You don't do it for that. You do it so that fruit can be there for other people. And remember, dear people, young people, no vine ever produced fruit for itself. Someone else gets the benefit of it. And they need it. And they come and get it. It's alive. It's rich. And it's full of nutrition. And refreshment. And we produce this fruit for others. I never saw an orange tree in orange. And then there's another reason. There's another important practical aspect and then I'm done. This whole matter of being fruitful has the requirement that goes with it first. So, here comes the man with his basket to collect the fruit, to gather the harvest. But there is no harvest. Well, there's nothing here. Why? I know why there's nothing here. I never sowed anything in the first place. This is John chapter 4. This is verse 36. And he that reapeth receiveth wages and gathereth fruit unto eternal life that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And he that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. But he won't do it if he never sowed it. You'll never lead a soul to Christ if you don't sow the seed. And the seed is the word of God. If we never share it, never visit it, never offer it, never tried, never sowed it, fruitless. For me is thy fruit found. These two go together. This is what Jesus called being a witness unto me. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, on the uttermost parts of the earth. It's what the Revelation calls the testimony of Jesus Christ. And they're reciprocal. The more I live close to God, the more power and anointing and desire and love he gives me for those who know him not. And the more I serve others and reach out and try and attempt and witness or teach or sow, the closer comes that union to God. Dear people, for me is thy food found. 
We're called to be fruitful unto the Lord. And we can be as fruitful as we want to be. And tonight you can be as fruitful as you allow God to make you. Let's pray. And help us, Father, tonight to understand these words. I hope this was not too complicated, too difficult. I hope, O oh God, that this was simple enough for these precious lives to understand. I pray, God, that you would give me the understanding I need so I can believe what you have said here. And we want to follow you. But we make mistakes when we follow. We, know we want to get closer. We must get closer than that. We must be attached to you, fastened into you, abiding in you, choosing to remain there by faith in Christ, knowing that right now as I live here, I'm living by the faith of the Son of God, knowing that right now as we do this next thing that you give us to do, you're here to help us to do it. We did not do it alone. Oh God, and in that way, with that union, with that fellowship with Christ, then be glorified in our lives, whether by life or by death. And purify our hearts and our spirits. And magnify yourself within us, O oh God, because we want to be yours and be fruitful unto our God. And bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sinner is a wrong kind of person to be. We would not want to be sinners. But wait a minute. Jesus loves sinners. Jesus receiveth sinners and eateth with them. Jesus is a friend of sinners. When Jesus finds a sinner, he is drawn to that sinner. It would be not wrong to be a sinner tonight. It would not be wrong to say, I need that friendship with the Lamb of God. It would not be wrong to say, would you please come and abide at my house? It would not be wrong to say to Jesus, I'd love to hear your words. I have great deeds in my life. Would you come and sit in my home and teach me? It would not be wrong to kneel at his feet and weep there. It's a wonderful thing to be a sinner in the presence of Christ. Won't you please think about that? Let's stand and be dismissed.